I'm going to say a word. Uh, feel free to share what comes to mind if it's appropriate to say in church. Um, <clears throat> the word confidence. What comes to mind when you hear the word confidence? Strong? What else? Confidence. Maybe you don't have any confidence to answer that question. What's that? Assurance. Okay. Fearless. Anything else? Faith. Okay. Well, maybe arrogance. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? Secure. What was that? Bold. Okay. So you get the idea that when we think about the word confidence and the maybe the attitude or disposition of confidence, um, it, it can bring all sorts of thoughts to our mind, uh, whether it's what we see in others or what we see of ourselves. Webster's Dictionary defines the word confidence as a feeling of consciousness of one's powers or of reliance on one's circumstances. It also adds that it is the quality or state of being certain and also a relation of trust. Now, there are all sorts of things we are confident in, whether it's our job or a hobby or a skill that we have developed over the years. Many of you have skills that I don't have, and when I see it in action, I see the confidence that you exhibit in being able to do something that I look at and I think, I can't even attempt that. We can also be confident in our relationships with people or a group of people, whether they're people like a spouse or a child or someone in our family or a close friend, that we have confidence that that person is going to be there when we need them. Now, I remember uh, the, the first time that we went on the missions trip to Guatemala, um, we, were, we were flying back to the States from Guatemala City, and I remember I had confidence that I was going to be allowed to return to the country because I had a passport that proved that I was a citizen of the United States. And so, you know, I wasn't sitting there in the plane afraid, like, what's going to happen when I get off the plane, and what are they going to do to me, those kinds of things. It's good to be confident. In fact, if I weren't confident right now in what I was saying or the ability to say it, I wouldn't last too long in this kind of calling. But I think Janet touched on something when she said, what was the word that you used? Arrogance. Um, sometimes arrogance comes from a false confidence. Uh, being brash in, in what we think is true about ourselves or certainty in a situation that isn't necessarily a reality. We can have false confidence. Believing in something to be true that isn't in ourselves or in a person or in a situation. Trusting in a person that isn't trustworthy. Acting like we can do something that we really can't. Now I'm confident in 
what I'm doing right now, but if I were to come up here right before the sermon and have confidence that I could do special music, you all wouldn't think that the music was so special. (laughs) It would be false confidence. But there's another kind of false confidence that is far more tragic. And it concerns our relationship with God. And more importantly, what we are believing and what makes God approve of us. And as a result, where we will spend our eternity. The question is, on what are you basing your confidence before a holy God? On what are you basing your standing before God? On what are you basing your confidence? Now, that's the question that we're going to seek to answer this morning as we look at Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 9. In a few minutes, uh, I'm going to read verses 30 through 33. Now, we're in a section in Romans 9 where the Apostle Paul is, he isn't transitioning completely, but what he has been doing in this chapter is he has been bringing up the idea of what has happened to God's people, special people, set-apart people, called people, the nation of Israel? What has happened to them in the day of the church, in the time of Jesus Christ? Because when you read the Old Testament, you see this unique relationship that God had with his people, and then Jesus shows up, and it seems like, not that they've disappeared, but their relationship with God has changed. Because in the Old Testament, they seem to be close and friendly and, and in, in favor of the things of God that we are reading. And then you read the New Testament and Jesus shows up and they're antagonistic and, and, and they're not following and, and they seem to be tearing apart what God has, has uh, built up in the church. And so Paul has been bringing us through this thought of if God has made promises to the nation of Israel, then why don't they seem to be fulfilled? Why are, why are there not people from the nation that are believing. And as we've been walking through this chapter over the last several weeks, we've, we've noticed some things about God's promises. And, and it's this, they have not failed. God's word has not failed. God's word is true. And the things that he said about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament are still true in the time of Paul that he's writing it. And it's still true today that God was not saving the nation of Israel just because you belong to the nation but that God has always saved the remnant of his people. There's always been a promise that there would be people in that, na- in, in that nation, in that group of, uh, at large that would be the ones that are true believers because God cares more about faith than he does your lineage. And so God is, has been faithful in keeping his promises And those promises are still true, even as they include a new group of people. And we talked about that last week, this new group, we call them the Gentiles. Now, for a Jewish person, or understanding a biblical understanding of what a Gentile is, it's anyone else that wasn't Jewish. And we see 
And we talked about this last week, the even us of verse, let's see, where was that? 24. That even us, God has kept his promises to the people that are called the Gentiles. And he has begun a relationship with them that was always there, even in the Old Testament. That God had made promises that he was going to include a group of people that did not follow the, the rules and the customs that were in the Old Testament. That God had made a promise, even through Abraham, that he was going to bless the nations as a result of his faith in God. And today, we see that in reality as God has called a people called the church that are his family. And so as we walk through these things, we're coming to the point in the book of Romans in chapter 9 where now Paul is beginning to explain how can we as a people, Gentiles, be a people in relationship with God if there was a people, the Jews, who were called to be in a relationship with God that have missed it so greatly? I mean, how could they miss the mark so much? What happened in their life? Because these people were so confident that they were God's people. And when you read these words in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it just seems like they're so far off in their understanding as a, as a child of God. And so we want to answer that question this morning. We want to work through uh, some of the things that Paul brings up because it, it applies to us. And I'll say it this way. The dangers that existed in the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago concerning their confidence in God are still the same dangers that exist today in the church as people gather and celebrate God's goodness. How many people do you know or how many people have you heard of that have based their relationship with God, their confidence, based on what they do? Many. They've based their confidence in the benefits that God gives based on their morality, how good they think they are. They believe that the good will outweigh the bad. They might even acknowledge, I'm not a perfect person. But I do a whole lot of good in my life. The Bible calls that works righteousness. It's the idea that you can perform a certain amount of good in your life that God will receive that good and He will give you favor and bless you as a result of it. Now, here's the thing. The Bible talks about it, but the Bible also acknowledges that that thinking is absolutely false. That there is no standing by us, men and women, children, and everyone included, 
where God looks at us and says, you can stand in my presence because you've done really well with how you're living. If you've been with us long enough in Romans, you know that that is the absolute antithesis of what Paul's been teaching. I would encourage you, if you, if you want to challenge me on this, read Romans chapter 3. Because Paul says emphatically that there is nobody who does good. There is nobody righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And every person that walks this earth has a sin nature. And as a result, they bear the wrath of God as penalty for their sins. There is nobody good. There is nobody good enough. No, not one. And that's the question that I think we we struggle with at times, right? I remember reading a book over 10 years ago, just a short little book uh, written by Pastor Andy Stanley, and it's How Good is Good Enough? How good is good enough? I mean, if good is the measure, how good do you have to be? Because I think I can do good things sometimes, but what if that good thing isn't good enough? And for people that are trapped into that kind of thinking, they get caught in this cycle of trying to outperform what they did before, because what if what they did before isn't good enough? And it just seems like an endless pursuit again and again of thinking that we can outdo so that we can receive favor and blessing. And I would say more importantly, relationship with God. So the question, one of these questions that deals with confidence that we need to tackle with is where are you or what are you placing your trust in so that you can spend forever with God? Because this isn't just an outside-the-world problem. This can be a church problem. Because it is so easy to evaluate ourselves based on what we do. Right? Just think over your last week. And if I were to ask you, how was your relationship with God? You would say, okay, I did this, I did that, I didn't do this, or I fell into that, or those kind of things. You can go through the mental checklist of all those things and think, okay, well, I'm better off today than I was last week. Or, yeah, it was a terrible week. And we think when it's terrible, right, it's not just in the good that we do, but if you get caught up in works righteousness, if you get caught up in the cycle, when you're caught up in the bad things, then you think, I must not be a child of God. He must not love me. I must not belong to Him. He must have let me go. He must have taken His promises from me. But if we pursue a relationship with God that way, it's a vain pursuit. The nation of Israel had this kind of relationship with God as a whole. And that's what Paul is dealing with. That's why, in, in many ways, as we look at Romans 9, Paul says they've kind of been set aside. Right? They're set aside for a time because now Paul is working through, or God is working through this, this group called the church. 
that includes Jew and Gentile that have believed in the Son, Jesus. And so let me read these verses for you, and I want you to be thinking through this question about confidence. Paul says in verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So we're going to do something a little different this morning in this passage. Now, it's going to accomplish the same uh, purpose, but typically when, we, when I teach through the scriptures, we go verse by verse, word by word through it. This morning as we look at these verses, verses 30 through 33, I, I, I want to look at the text itself, but I also want to look at it through the lens of the two groups of people that are mentioned in this passage. And, and what I'd like to do is focus on one group first. And so when we look at this group first, it, some of the verses aren't exactly going to be in order. Uh, and then we'll return to the second group. And because we see a comparison and a, and a contrast here in what Paul is saying about this idea of confidence, of, of, of that certainty that we have standing with God. And, and the first group I want to look at is the, the one that's painted in a negative light, and that, that is the group of the Jewish people. They're called Israel in verse 31. Notice what Paul says about these people, the Jews, that they were guilty of pursuing even thinking that they could attain righteousness through the law that they could attain righteousness through the law. Now, the law here and the mind of the person that was reading it uh, focused on those commands that were given by Moses through the inspiration of God as God spoke them to Moses to guide in the relationship that these people would have with God as they walked with God in the promised land that he was going to give them. So when you read in, in the Old Testament books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. When you read those historical books about the nation of Israel as they're walking with God in the land that he gave, there was a command that was given to these people. And basically what God is saying is, I'm your God, you're my people, here are the roles of the relationship. And so then they began to understand that if they're going to follow God and if they're going to be a part of this covenant community, this is what you do to be in a relationship with God. The problem is that God never intended the basis of the relationship to be focused on what you do. It was the safeguards of the relationship. It was always by faith. But in faith, God is saying, if you're going to be my people... This is how you live. This is what it means to follow me. But the Jewish people had flipped it and said, this is how we know because we did all of these things. They had commands. They had the law. 
And then they had commands for those commands that weren't in the law. They were really good at looking at the things written in the Old Testament and adding to it as safeguards, as being careful. Listen, the Jews for a large part believed that the law, that law keeping was the way to God. Even to this day, the Jewish people, by and large, and I'm talking about Jewish people that actually look at the Bible, the Old Testament, and say that that is the law of God. Because there's a large group of Jewish people by lineage that they don't believe in God. They're a part of a nation, but they don't necessarily believe in God. I'm talking about the people that belong to the nation of Israel, and they are God-fearing. By and large, they have all sorts of rules and regulations as it comes to pleasing God and obeying His Word. Now, we, saw, we even see some of this in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, we read about the early disciples, right? The, the men that followed Jesus, that after Jesus died, before He ascended, it says in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, that the disciples traveled a Sabbath day journey. That's a strange thing, right? A Sabbath day journey. Well, what was a Sabbath day journey? Well, you're not going to find the answer of what a Sabbath day journey is in the Old Testament because it wasn't a part of the law of God. It wasn't a command that God said that this is what a Sabbath day journey is. A Sabbath day journey was added on by the elders of Israel, the teachers, the keepers of the law. And a Sabbath day journey was a designated amount of um, uh, length that you could travel on the Sabbath day. And and in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, when we look at this passage, and I'll just read it for you. This is what Luke writes about this Sabbath day journey. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. So a Sabbath day journey, the amount that you could travel on the Sabbath day, the day that you were supposed to rest, which to keep the Sabbath day holy, right? To keep the Sabbath day holy is the fourth command. They were called to do that. And you could only travel from Mount, the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. That's as far as you could go on the Sabbath day. And the leaders said, to keep the Sabbath day holy, don't go too far because if you go too far then your travel becomes work and you're not resting. So I don't know how far you came to church this morning. But if it was further from the Mount of Olives, which is just right outside of Jerusalem, you're breaking the Sabbath. And you think, nah, I have air conditioning in my car. I didn't break a sweat. But that... They were really good at keeping the law. There were laws for their laws. Listen to what the Jews do today concerning their holy books. And when I say holy books, it's a stack of holy books. They have the Torah. The Torah is the law. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's the law that God had given through Moses. 
They have the prophets and the writings, which are the other writings that include the historical books of Joshua and Judges and so on, and also the prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel. They have books like the Siddur, which is the song book. They sing to God. And they have books like prayer books. They have the Talmud, which is the commentary on the scriptures of what they mean. So they have all of these holy books. And some of the rules and laws that they have concerning these books is that you are to never put them on the floor. So if you came into the sanctuary this morning, and maybe you are sitting in the blue chairs because maybe with the the pews you have the rack in front of you. But if you're sitting in the blue chairs and you had your Bible and you didn't have anywhere to sit it, someone sat next to you, what would you do? Maybe you tucked it under your seat. Well, that's a no-no for a Jewish person. You you don't put the, the scriptures on the ground. In fact, if the Torah scroll, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, uh, which are the holiest books for the Jewish person, if the Torah scroll fell on the ground, congregations today still will fast for 40 days if it happens. Yikes. I don't think that's in the Bible, though. They're also to never put these holy books on a chair, a bench, or a couch when somebody is sitting on it. They are to never bring them into the bathroom. Now, I think that's just a like obvious thing. Like, yeah, don't do that. But it's not a law. They're to never put other objects or books on top of them. There's a hierarchy of these holy books. And when they are all carried together, you are to put them in a certain order to keep that hierarchy. You are to always rest them facing up and flip them if they are facing down. And you are to never leave one of these books open if it is not in use. Now that seems like a whole lot that you have to think about. The point is that the law, this is what Paul is saying, Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. That this law of righteousness was to never prove that they were right or have right standing in God's presence. Listen, the law was never given. God never gave the law to the nation of Israel so that the nation of Israel could say, okay, now I have a means to please God. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point of it is guilty of breaking the law. Right? And you can go through the Old Testament and say, okay, I didn't do this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. And you might say, I kept 585 of them. So it certainly seems like I'm doing a whole lot of good that outweighs the certain amount of commands that I struggle keeping. And you can think, well... I'm heading in the right direction. And James chapter 2, verse 10 comes in. James, a half-brother of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit 
that as we look at the law, if you stumble in just one of them, let's say you kept 612 of the 613 commands and you kept all of them except one, that one that you broke means that you broke them all. It is a vain, endless pursuit. How many of you have ever had an x-ray or an MRI? Okay, some of you are like, yeah. yeah. Um, Those machines are much like the law. They are only diagnostic. If you're not feeling well, and you go to the doctor and you explain your symptoms, and the doctor says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to write a script for you to get get an x-ray or to sit in one of those tubes, right, an MRI machine, and you can't move for a long time and all those things, Uh, those machines can only reveal what is wrong with you. They can't heal you. That's like the law. The law can only reveal what is wrong with you. The law can never heal you. You can't pursue the law and works righteousness and keeping all of the commands and trying to find favor with God as a means to an end. It was never meant to be that way for God's people. And yet the Jews nationally were not the true Israel, but they tried to keep their relationship with God by following all of these rules and regulations and things that weren't even in the law. I mean, I read the Old Testament and I think, oh my word, this is hard. And they said, well, let's make it harder. They kept adding more to it. Because if there was any question about anything, they would add 20 other things so that it was clear what it meant. And then Paul says, the why of why they didn't find standing with God in verse 32. Why didn't they find it pursuing a law of righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith. That's the key. Faith has always been the key. It was for Abraham in the book of Genesis when God called this man and he said, Abraham, you are right in my eyes. You have standing in my presence because you believe me. You believe in me. It was the same for Moses and David and the prophets. That they were right in God's eyes because they believed in God. We sang this morning, right? The first song, by faith. That's what it's about. But along the way, We get in the way. I was talking to someone recently this week, and we were talking about all the craziness that exists concerning belief in God. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about even now, right, there are people that believe in Jesus, like us, that think very differently about things than we do. There are churches everywhere that have all sorts of beliefs and understandings, and this is what you do, and this is how you live it out, and and it, it can seem overwhelming and confusing, It's like we create more hoops that we can jump through so that we can justify our belonging to Him. We're talking about this and 
And I, the statement or the thought just came to me and I said to them, you know, the problem is religion is easy. It's easy. It's easy because we have something to follow. We have rules. We have boxes to check. We have the doing of the relationship. And it's so easy to look at all that and say, okay, this is why I know I'm accepted. But that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to set us free from that kind of thinking. Because there is no performance in us that makes us acceptable in God's eyes. I just said to you a few minutes ago, there is nobody that is good, not even one. We need to be rescued. And the law that was given that was to be a diagnostic tool to show us just how needy we are of a Savior. Jesus came not to abolish that law, but He came to fulfill that law. And so we don't need to look to the law as a means to an end. Next week, as we look at Romans 10, we're going to look at that thought that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law more deeply. But Israel pursued a law of righteousness. And as a result, they missed the fulfillment of the law. They missed Jesus. They missed the promised Savior. They missed the one to come that would be the example. And He would be the sacrifice. And He would be the fulfillment. They were so passionate in keeping roles that Paul says in Romans 9... Verse 32, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They failed to gain a righteous standing before God because they tried to win the race of life by works. And they were tripped up. Think about that. Could you imagine living your whole life thinking that you were doing really well and you get to the finish line and you're like right there and you just fall flat on your face? And you miss the goal. They tripped over, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Listen, if you're running a race, you want to choose a path of least resistance. Because if there's something in front of you that you can trip over, it causes resistance. And resistance slows us down. And it can possibly cause us to jump the track altogether. Now in verse 32, when Paul says that they stumbled over the stumbling stone, he clarifies who the stumbling stone is in verse 33. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You know what I love about this truth? That this stumbling stone was promised a very long time before he ever came to the earth. This quotation in verse 33 is from the book of Isaiah. It's actually two quotations. It's two verses. It's Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14 and Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, smushes them together. He can do that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in combining these passages into one thought, we see that the stumbling stone that was the tripping point for the nation of Israel 
is the chief cornerstone that is Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that God is building a great house of faith. And it is all built upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. National Israel's unbelief, and that's what Paul is explaining in verses 32 and 33. National Israel, their unbelief is, perf- is perfectly consistent with the testimony of the Old Testament. That the Messiah was going to come and the Messiah would be rejected. The promised one to come to save and redeem the nation. The nation would say about that promised one, we do not want you. So we look again at this text and we see the ruin of the Jews and the rejection of the Messiah because they did not pursue God by faith, they pursued God by works. We see then the second group that has been grafted in, the group of the house that God is building. That also includes the remnant of believing Israel. Those from the nation that would look at the Messiah and say, yes, he is the one that we trust in. And for all who have agreed with that declaration, the Gentiles too, that look at the one that came and said, yes, we believe in him who is the one that takes away the sin of the world. Paul says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness even the righteousness which is by faith. I love the play on words here that Paul says. Listen, you have a group of people, the Jews, they're trying to attain righteousness. That's the first thing that we see here. That righteousness is not pursued. You cannot chase after it. It's given. You see that? That might be the most fundamental transformational truth you need to hear this morning. Righteousness is not something you pursue. It is something that is given. Why is that so transformational? Why could that change your life? Because it's this. You can't do anything to receive God's favor. His favor, your standing, is given to you. By faith. There's not enough good that you can do. And what what was ironic for this people, the nation of Israel and then the Gentiles. The Gentiles are living life and they're like, listen, we have no laws. We have no rules. We have nothing that we're trying to pursue and please God. And they found righteousness. And then you have the people group that is working really hard, trying their best, trying to check all the boxes, and they never get righteousness. And that's the strange thing that Paul's trying to explain to the church in Rome about what it means to follow God. And yet we see again and again and again that righteousness is not something that you do, it's something that is given, and that's the heart of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. Oh yeah, that group that we just talked about. 
and also to the Greek. And the Greek is the Gentile. For in it is the righteousness of God. It is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul doesn't say the righteous man shall live by works. We live by faith. And so we attain righteousness. We don't pursue it. And second, we can't get it by how good we are. It's trusting. Righteousness is something that we receive by trusting that someone greater has taken your place, has received your punishment, so that you can receive all the good promises that God gives. And that someone is Jesus Christ, God's Son. Jesus took your place on the cross as the perfect one. Jesus didn't need a law because he is without sin. And he came and he fulfilled the law, the demands of it. And when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was the substitutionary payment for all the sins that mankind would commit. And the Father looked at that sacrifice and was well pleased. And when Jesus was raised from the dead three days later, He was raised triumphantly over sin and death. Your approval, your standing, your confidence in God is guaranteed by faith in His Son. Believing in what He has done for you. One commentator said about this passage, There's hardly a passage in the New Testament stronger than this one in its exposure of the futility of works as a means of justification. What is justification? It's the legal declaration that you can stand before a holy God approved. And this passage just tears that apart, that you can't stand before God based on what you do. It is only by faith. Now look at the end of verse 33, that final phrase from Isaiah. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now that word disappointed is important. It's better translated, not ashamed. And he who believes in him will not be ashamed. And what does that mean? Well, it means this. That faith in Jesus means that you can have confidence in the last day to stand in the presence of a holy God and you will not be afraid. You will not be ashamed. That God does not give us a spirit, a feeling of shame when we are with him. He's not going to look at you and say, you know what, you can be with me, but remember all those things that you did? It's taken away. 
Jesus has taken it away. It was nailed to the cross. And even today, even yet, all around us are people who are thinking they are living a good life based on what they do. And they think that at the end of their life, when they face the Lord, they'll be able to say, look, Jesus, I did all of this for you. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, depart from me, for I never knew you. Listen, you can do a lot of good for Jesus, but if you're basing your confidence and your standing with God based on what you do, Jesus will say to you, depart from me. But if you do a lot of good for Jesus as a, out of the overflow of your belief in Jesus, first you love Jesus, first you have believed in him, first you understand that his death was really your death, that he substituted himself for you so that you don't have to bear the wrath of God anymore. Then as you do good in life, when you face Jesus, And you stand before a holy God. That holy God says, come home because you have my son's righteousness. Righteousness is something that is given to you, not something that you pursue. So what about you? What confidence do you have as it concerns where you will spend forever? Is it in what you do? Is it what you even do for God? This is a serious question. If you are basing your confidence by how good you are, you are in danger, my friend. Your works are not good enough. They never were. I warn you because your life depends on it. Stop trying to gain God's favor by what you do. It doesn't work. I pray that you see the righteousness of God today, that it is provided through faith in His Son, and that is where you stand. It's through His grace that we receive right standing in His forever blessings. And can I say with a message like this one, it is entirely appropriate for us to celebrate His gift. And we're going to do that later today. Listen, you may not know any of the people being baptized. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, you need to be there at 12 o'clock. Why? Because we get to see people that are making a step of commitment saying that I believe in the Son. And the Son has saved me from my sins. And I belong to His family. Not based on what I do, but based on what has been done for me. And God's people make public declaration, celebration, acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the Son. So you really need to stick around. And church, if there's anything 
there's any doubt in your mind that you don't know for sure where your confidence is, hear me say this, that you can know for certain right now that you can find approval in God's sight if you believe in his son, Jesus, and everything that he has done for you. And when you believe, he saves you from your sin and he gives you his righteousness. And you get to enjoy him forever. So let's pray and ask God to help us figure out these hard questions.